Hi, everyone. Happy to be back on our 2022 podcast series on Contingent Workforce Radio. My name is Erica Novak, Head of Client Services here at Utmost. And today's podcast is brought to you by Well Utmost, the VMS Transformed, enabling your full talent supply chain in one global network. I'm excited to have Alan Kumar, Elastic Talent PM from Dolby Labs, my guest today. Alan, you can do it better than I can. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah. Hey, Erica. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really excited to have this talk. Yeah. Alan Kumar, Elastic Talent Program Manager here at Dolby Laboratories. I've been overseeing the program now for a little over a year now. Previous to this, I was at Upwork, which is an online talent marketplace. Had a couple roles with them, but I oversaw their internal contingent labor program about six months before going public and then you know overseeing it throughout from there. Prior to that, I was in the MSP space working for IQ Navigator and GRI and was a part of the Apple MSP program for the greater part of five years. And before that was in the account management space for, you know, staffing agencies. So I've been a part of the agency side, the MSP side, and have been on the client side now for a good amount of time. So super excited to be here and dig in. Love it. And I love that profile. Like folks who've played different roles on both sides of the coin, I think come with a really unique perspective of, right. It's a little bit of empathy. Um, I've been on the other side. I know what's important to them. I know what they're trying. I know the gap. So it's really exciting that, you know, moving from kind of the supplier side to the MSP side to Upwork was a very different type of program what you're trying to set up to now what you're doing at Dolby. There's a great knowledge and influence that you have of why things should be done versus maybe traditionally how they've done in the past. That's that's exciting. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Dolby. And I got to say, I love the Elastic Talent Program Manager. That's different. You hear people talk about unified and blend and flexible or whatnot. So did you actually get to come up with that cool title or was it given to you? What's the story? It's one where I would love to say that I came up with it, but my manager was actually floating around a couple ideas of what to potentially call it. I was actually hired as a Flex Talent Program Manager, but I thought it might cause some confusion with Flex Work, which is a little bit different, right? So for Elastic, it made a lot of sense because it really lends into what is a contingent labor program. It allows you to scale up and down. So that elasticity really makes a lot of sense. I've been a part of programs where I think flex has been used a lot. It seems to be a little bit of a default in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I thought elastic really made a lot of sense to be able to differentiate it from there. In terms of the program that I run, so I oversee our global contingent labor program. What that means is overseeing our USMSP, but then also my broader scope is just managing non-employee workforce in general, whether it be managed projects, you know, outside for solutions globally from that aspect of it. And yeah, really just trying to come in, centralized services, operations, and our general offerings, and to be able to really provide managers a toolkit to be able to accomplish what we're trying to do strategically from a broader perspective as a company. No, that's great. And I think today we're really focused on effectively managing distributed teams. And it's been interesting because I think, especially in the contingent workforce world, we've been so used to it. It's not new right? When people are managing outsourced programs or an outsourced vendor, plus some ASIM consultants, plus contractors, employees, it typically has been done around the world. And so I love this because it, it brings up the highlight of this work. You know, we talk a lot about the future of work or modern work. And in the contingent workforce world, it's been going on for decades. And so it's been great to see now there's training on what that should look like or what are things that managers, especially new managers, should be aware of. And so I'd love to hear from you like in a highly distributed environment like you guys are today. How are things going and what are some of the challenges you've experienced and are coaching your business leaders and managers on what it's like and what to be thoughtful of knowing that the teams are distributed now? 
Yeah, I think the pandemic accelerated the industry probably by a couple decades at this point, right? You really got comfortable working with people that are across different geos or more or less basically working with people that are boxes on a screen. So companies that might have historically not been comfortable, you know, with remote work or remote talent, it really drove the adoption piece of it. In general, and I'll draw it on a couple of points, right? Just because I've been at Dolby for a little bit of time, but I've also worked at other places where, you know, it was more common. So I'll draw on those pieces of it too. But I think the biggest piece of it is, you know, being able to effectively manage the workers. And it's one where it's not just, uh, you know, is the work getting done? You know, what are the right communication channels? What can be done asynchronously? When do updates need to occur? And then also just being cognizant of like, hey, there's different communication styles based on where the geography is. Some people might have just a one word answer. And that's not to say that they're, you know, being short with you. That's just how the communication styles is. Or some people might overcommit to something where it's like, hey, let's make sure we unpack that then make sure that's an okay deliverable piece from there. So a lot of that stuff actually comes into maybe changing the way that the work is done too. A rule of thumb that I always have from an operation standpoint is if I knock my head and I had to come back and redo my work, is there something that I could sort of look into as like a playbook to be able to execute on these type of things, right? So breaking away some of the tribal knowledge that teams might have, right? Of like, well, hey, come in. Because in a contingent labor world, you know, you're not hiring someone and expecting them to be there for seven years. You want them to be able to come in and rapidly scale with you to be able to execute quickly. And that means making sure your documentation is there. What's your onboarding process look like from there? Does it make sense to maybe have a buddy in place to be able to leverage them, right? Because you might have your hiring manager, your director, but can they really be able to help and assist, right? So it's really building that ecosystem. And it's a muscle that not a lot of companies build rapidly, right? So it's one where it's sort of built over time. But I think for good contingent labor programs, you're trying to build a playbook for these managers as to how can you do this successfully. And that's some of the stuff that we're working out with Dolby, but it's also to like my last program, it's one where historically what I'd seen previously was that, yeah, companies are global, but it's one where the global teams are sort of isolated in those type of ways. So deliverables might sort of mend, but it's one where what if you have a team and you actually have core team members that interact on a daily basis from Kenya, Jamaica, and the Philippines, because now that's actually a common thing that can occur from there. And what's the right way to sort of leverage and manage those things to be corrective and effective on those type of pieces of it. So yeah, in my last program, it was in 80 countries, right? So it's a very interesting one to sort of get ahead of like, how can we manage this effectively? And also if it's new to someone that comes from an organization where that's not a common place. So that's probably long-winded, but I'll sort of leave it from there and anything you might want to unpack from that piece of it. Oh, you know, I'm going to. Absolutely. All right. Let's break that down because I think onboarding has always been a challenge and I think across anything. So let's forget worker classifications, right? Yeah. How do you onboard someone in a way that they are productive as quickly as possible? Because you are right. Tons of things are tribal knowledge and in their head from that one person who's been here for You know, if you're in old school world, 30 years, if you're in this year, it's two years or so. But I think with contingent workforce and when things are distributed, a contingent workforce has a different level of not just we don't have time. There's a ghost of co-employment concern of should we write this down? Should they get this? I'd love to hear your opinion on if you're looking to build out these teams recommendations, what are you encouraging folks to have written down and how do you alleviate their fears of, well, what if someone takes this or should they have this knowledge in a way that actually can get it to where they can, the time to productivity for these people are good? 
Yeah, what I would say, like just breaking down in multiple ways, it's even to like streamlining, how can we sort of make sure these folks have the right access, especially when it comes to even global teams, it's one where like, does it make sense to do a virtual workspace and all those type of matters of it from there. When it comes to documentation, I think it's good to at least have a general onboarding plan because even though, you know, they're contingent workers, you still need to make sure they're ramped up effectively and have the right tools to execute and to do their jobs, right? And it's one where I think, Every company has their own stance of, you know, what are some of the guardrails when it comes to compliance? I think a lot of companies really tend to be a little bit overly stringent, but that's based on your company and your culture and ultimately what's your risk profile. But I think there's a lot more leniency than maybe some teams may be under the assumption of. But I think a big piece of it is, you know, from an onboarding piece of it, what are the right tools and systems this person needs to have? And by what time frame do they need to do it? From a compliance perspective, it's one where it's not to say that you can't document anything. It's one where I actually think it's good to make sure that you have a right common documentation in place because that's just to be able to be successful for workers to be able to do what they do, right? But I think in general, it's just making sure, you know, what are the right tool systems in place? I've personally found that it makes sense to have a buddy system and also too, to where someone can actually readily ask questions as they need to from there. And then also being very explicit about, you know, what is the work and what are the deliverables from that piece of it too, right? You know, you have someone that's in place you know, what are we generally asking of them from there too? I think a big piece of it is with the onboarding, it's one where do we know what's the best way to sort of leverage it and what's the right work that they're doing of it? Great, you found this great engineer, but what are you sort of plugging into? What teams are they going to be in and how do we make it more effective from there? So I think, you know, people and time management, I think is good too. So. All right though, let's hit on this because I think in general that a CW program managers are permission seekers. Yep. And so the initial thought is, let me go to legal. And legal is typically a no keep close fist. And so it's yeah. been interesting to watch how that affects productivity, especially in distributed teams. So now you have someone who has all this knowledge and someone who's seeking for it, learning on. And yeah. I think CW programs have moved forward over the last, let's say, seven years, yeah. right? Where the conservatism is starting to go away a little bit. Yep. But I do think that pushing on the documentation and, and being able to show the value in this knowledge is productivity, not to treat them like an employee is good. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what can the CW team do to help managers rather than having the managers create everything from scratch. There's something a CW program can take on on the onboarding world to help. Yeah. And I think that sort of bleeds into the idea of creating a playbook and sort of knowing that, you know, what, is going to be effective for an engineering team might not be the same as it would be for a marketing team. So I think it's in general of just writing down like, hey, these are the key areas for you to be productive for your work. These are the key areas for if you need to ask a question, these are the right channels. To, what's the right methods for communication for asynchronous? Do you know who are the right points of contact for, you know, help troubleshooting a problem? And also what are your core team members and how can they, you know, be able to understand and know who to go to for some of these things? Going back a bit, I hope I don't pivot too much of it. I always feel from a risk perspective, it's one where a happy workforce is just simply that a happy workforce because what's compliance and risk? Is there a potential that they might sue you or X, Y, or Z? You want to make sure that you're doing things correctly too, but you also want to make sure that workers are happy on that piece of it too, right? So, And maybe we can unpack this one too later, Erica, but I've always found that it's very good 
to measure satisfaction for both managers and for workers on a variety of factors, right? Like how satisfied are you with your work? Do you feel empowered with it? Do you feel good about the direction on those type of pieces? And I think you get a lot of good tidbits, you know, when you do some of these satisfaction things where managers can then sort of tell you what's working well and what's not. And also the workers as well, too. It's like, hey, you know, this was helpful. This was not. I mean, to be able to get those direct insights, because if you create a general playbook, you should always be iterating in general, right? So or reiterating as you need to on that piece of it. I've always been big on what works today probably shouldn't work five years from now. Um, yes. So the stuff that I've put in place at other companies, it might not work Adobe. And I want to make sure that it's very distinct to what the company is. And I think even to when we talk about playbooks, it is very distinct on what your company is, what's your risk tolerance, risk profile, and also how are you engaging the workers? Because that's also depends on how you might be training them or how you can set up the work basically to make sure that it's successful from there. No, I like that because I could not be right anymore on the idea of usually the happy non-employees or the happy employees aren't joining the class action lawsuit, aren't filing the complaints, right? And so the people are a little worried about inclusivity. What's well, too much, but generally, again, it's respect, treatment, set up for success. So you listed a couple of things and I couldn't agree more on the surveys, right? Yeah. One is where you set up for success. Where do you start to see disengagement? As it took a week to get my computer, I didn't really do anything. I didn't know yeah. who to talk to, especially if we're thinking about post-COVID where a lot of people are still working from home. And that idea of having someone walk you around the office to give you the tour, it's not there. It's virtual now. And so the yeah. idea of saying, did I have the equipment and access I needed on time? Did I have someone to lead me? It does change. It does change how people are coming into a project or a role or a company effects. I think that you are spot on for that. And I think sometimes... CW programs, and I'm fighting for this a lot, is they'll kind of say, I only do this for the contractors, or my MSP does it, or well, each of my staffing supplier does it differently. And in my world, it's no, you set the standard that all the other suppliers then, then follow of it should be at least this. And then if they want to go beyond, fantastic. But part of a role as a CW program is that operational excellence and the time of productivity. It's not just time to fill. We focused a lot on getting people butts in seats and there's a goodness to that. Yeah. But the time of productivity afterwards and the engagement, I do believe should start following at least onto the CW program in conjunction, obviously with the business, because we can't do everything, but that time productivity is massive on how the ecosystem works. Does a staffing supplier want to work with you again, right? Because they spent all this money recruiting someone. If they leave after two weeks, they didn't feel like they were heard, set up for success or whatnot. You're not a program of value for us. I think that's a strong sentence to say on on how that works. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think too, especially when it comes to risk and worker satisfaction, there's something you said about just transparency of like what the engagement is too, right? Like it's one like getting ahead of, hey, how come I wasn't a part of that all hands meeting or hey, how come I wasn't in X, Y, or Z? It's also good to make sure that as a part of the onboarding, when they're doing, if your program does orientations or anything of that nature, to be very transparent to make sure that, hey, nothing was lost in translation, at least on that piece of it. You're driving on the inclusivity piece of it, but also just be cognizant that they might notice they might not be in a meeting because they don't necessarily need to. And why would that be, right? So that I think also was a big part of the onboarding piece of it from there. No. Do you see any difference culturally across countries? So you had mentioned before, you know, yeah. you've done programs across 80 countries. I'd love to know your thoughts on, do you advise people in the United States differently than Brazil, Singapore, Japan, 
Germany. Like, what are some of the tips that you have across geographies? Yeah, I think in general, the communication styles can tend to vary, right? I want to be cognizant not to overgeneralize, but there might be certain regions where, like I mentioned before, they might be short and sweet and to be sort of cognizant to be able to educate managers like, hey, this is not concerning. This is just sort of how the culture is or in another culture where, hey, they'll say no to nothing and they'll give you a yes, but you need to be cognizant. <laughs> It's actually going to be reasonable or viable to do, and also managing, you know, someone's workload to make sure that their priorities can get blurred by volume. And can you make sure that you're aware that someone might be uncomfortable to say no to you because of your leadership or your position? And to be able to educate on that type of piece of it. So it's one where it comes over time, right? It's one where you don't want to put too many generalizations because not everybody fits in one box, but it's good to at least be able to educate overarchingly that, hey, you know, this is stuff to sort of be aware of, and this is how you sort of measure things or temper things or, you know, be able to set the expectations correctly from there on that element of it too. And yeah, it's also to the geography piece of it. Also, another thing to tap into is as you go more global, you do need to be very aware of how compliance might be different in some of these other geographic locations. You know, there might be some places where it's like, hey, you don't offer a certain time off, but you might be engaging in a certain country where it's actually required that they have the exact same requirements that you do for your staff, or if you did a home reimbursement initiative that you might have to. And I've seen that in some Western European countries, et cetera. So you also do need to have a pretty good backbone. I always think contingent labor programs in general is like two buckets, right? service delivery and compliance and governance piece of it. So you do want to make sure both sides of those pieces are very strong on that piece of it, right? So it's the cultural elements, but also from a compliance standpoint, are you aware of any changing laws that might be on the horizon? You know, if ideally you have a strong legal team and legal partners, which I've been very happy to have during my career, but also as a part of any contingent leader, you should also be aware and in the space and making sure you're getting the news and being up to date on those type of pieces of it. So podcasts like these, other town halls, et cetera, I think is great from those pieces. No, I think that's huge. I think the best CW program owners, or sorry, elastic program owners is they always be learning, right? Because you're exactly right. Like employment law changes and there's kind of Compliance kind of works in a couple of different ways, right? There's the true regulatory. Can't get that wrong, right? And then there's operational guidance, right? Yep. Here's how we want things to be done. And so, well, you're right. The service delivery is the full ops, is the muscle firing? Is this working out now? The compliance side is twofold and you have to have a learning mindset and it cannot be yep. just a U.S. base. And we've said that several times, though. So sorry for the listeners who've heard us say that overall. Right. But like Germany is going to be different from Italy and they don't want to be thought of the same as Spain. And you better watch out when you come to Romania and Brazil and Argentina. Yeah. And, and, and as a CWPM or someone who's owning that, like you need to be bringing that guidance across the world because as your managers are working across. And again, typically it's people can now work from wherever. So even if we talk about outsource versus consulting versus contracting versus freelancing, let's just make it easy and say you have contractors across the globe is the compliance piece and the education piece of saying, so therefore then you need to be thoughtful of this when someone is here and here's what they need to do. And guess what? It is hard to manage, but that's why I'm here. That's where our team is here, you know, and that tools have to be flexible to support that versus yeah. I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. When I think about distributing teams, people will over index on just educate them, just educate them. And I'm telling you guys, 
It's too much. There's too much for them to learn. So how do you actually enable them through technology or team? Because it's too much to learn every global world law and your operational plans for a manager to get their job done. So I love your reaction on that. No, exactly. And it's one of the things I think a lot of people, if they don't, they should maybe try to struggle with is what's simple to us is not simple to someone else. In the same vein of like what an engineering team does is not simple to me, but it's very simple on their side, right? So for me, it's really big on trying to create digestible content. I don't want them to be employment law experts, nor are they paid to be. I just need to get them to be aware and cognitive, like, hey, when should you loop us in and when should you not on those type of pieces of it? So really, we just try to simplify the process, right? Like, how can you break down these complex topics and issues and to be able to do it in a way that, hey, it's only more need to know information. We're not trying to have them do our job. We just need to make sure that they're aware of just some general guardrails at a high level overview. And then also to be able to know mainly just to loop us in like, hey, we're your partner and we can get ahead of it. And then over time, if you find some people over indexing, that's stuff that you can sort of get ahead of over time things. You know, like I said, you should always be iterating on what type of information you have. But a big piece of it for me is one like, hey. Is there a central place that they can get information? Make sure it's not too much information. Make sure it's a good amount of content that they can at least be loose and lethal. And then also people learn in different ways. Like we look at it into like, hey, does it make sense for this to be in an infographic? Does a presentation make sense with this group or team? Does it make sense for us to do like an animated video? You know, people learn different things are changing and trending. With Dolby, I find it interesting, and now I'm going to explore a bit more of like, how can we make this a little bit more media and a little bit more entertainment-centric? you know, But with anything, I think it's really big, just digestible content. Like it's one where the compliance trainings that I do, I could fall asleep doing those, but I need to know (laughs) them, right? But I'm not going to have a manager go and do that, but I need to be able to downstream that information in some capacity. But more so the capacity is just to know when do you reach out to me or someone on my team or whoever it may be and, you know, on those elements of it too. It's one where you don't want to over-index. I've seen some stuff of doing manager certifications. I think that's fine. I think when some companies actually makes a lot of sense, but it's one where if it gets too weighted as a barrier of entry, that's also something to be aware of too, right? So it's one where you don't necessarily want to boil the ocean. You just need to figure out what makes sense for your company and also to what makes sense for one organization might not for another. So just be able to be cognizant of it and ensuring that, hey, you're a partner more than anything. In the same topic of compliance, we've heard a lot about continuity planning, right? And it's interesting through COVID is before continuity planning really meant around like systems going down, right? And I think over the last two years, it has moved more in a what if people don't show up or can't show up or sick immediately. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on like continuity planning around distribution teams and some of the advice you have for those. Yeah, I think in general, you need to look at it in several ways. Like, are you over-indexing on a certain geo, right? Are you potentially too concentrated in Eastern Europe? Nobody saw what was... Well, you you could say if nobody saw, but it's one where you wouldn't have, you know, predicted that the Russia-Ukraine situation would have happened and what would be the windfall of it from there too. So I think geographic dependencies, like if you sort of do, what I like to say is contingent workforce by the numbers. How many workers do you have? Where are they located? What's your spend? And really being able to look into those diagnostics. If something were to happen, you know, in India or whatever it may be, what's sort of the plan? Is the work set up even in a worst case scenario? 
can someone come in and be able to pick it up? Is there a single point of failure? Even too, with the vendors that you work with, right? Like it's one where M&As happen, mergers and acquisitions happen all the time. A company might buy your main vendor for something. <laughs> and are you ready for the windfall that might occur from some of those things too? It's really a best practice. Like it's one where, hey, you might find like, oh, wow, this has been a hotbed for talent and I could get it at a very you know great price or you know great skill set, whatever your reason may be. But are you being aware in a worst case scenario, what might happen in my last program, because it was so global, we had to do pretty interesting stuff where we did disaster tracking and having to come up with tools on like, hey, what if there's, you know, an earthquake or something in the Philippines and it impacts like a good amount of your workforce? Or what if there's, you know, a potential murmurs for war, right? And we've seen these things actually happen, you know, through the past few years. So it's one we're having some of those contingencies, you know, with the teams like, hey, not trying to boil the ocean here. But what, in a worst case scenario, are we making sure that, hey, your team is diversified when it comes to vendors, locations, and geos, as it makes sense? In some cases, it might not make sense. There might only be one vendor for such a thing, and you have to put some level of faith. But you still want to be able to get ahead of it uh, as, you know, not boiling the ocean every single time higher that you make. But you should be looking at your workforce by the numbers and be able to call some of these things out. Like, hey, is this work too dependent on X, Y, or Z? And the dependency can be varied based on a variety of factors and items, right? No, but I think you hit on a couple of good points because where I've seen some of this fall down is I think everyone typically assumes all workers have an at company email address. And if I think about a former program that I owned, same thing when you said like, whether it was an earthquake or war or tsunami, there was a fire in the location. And this company at a time was very heavily dependent on freelancers. They didn't have an at company email address. And so while, you know, physical security and different corporate communications are sending things out, don't go into the office, right? This is an extreme yeah. example, but let's, why not? Like again, yeah. war is an extreme example, right? Where it's, yeah. hey, don't go here. Are you okay? What not? A good majority of workers weren't getting them. It was very manager dependent. And when you think about in a good way, freelancers and contractors, there usually is a relationship. Not always, if I think about even with Upwork, right? Sometimes it's a short period and maybe they're not coming on, but usually there is a one-to-one, Erica to Allen. But if I think about outsourcing and consulting, there's not. And sometimes they are in buildings or they're not getting messages or there's multiple vendors. And let's be honest, when I think about some of the contract labor management systems or the supplier management systems, usually it's old supplier account managers that change over all the time that will put in a generic email. And so the communication to what usually is the largest non-employee population, contractors and freelancers are typically the smallest. It's the outsource consulting. The yeah. continuity planning out of how do you communicate breaks down immediately when it's yep. email-based. So knowing that the largest population of non-employees usually is your outsourcing consulting companies versus contractors and freelancers. What are recommendations that you would give to people trying to come up with these continuity plans of how to make sure your vendors and all classifications of work are being planned for when disaster hits? Yep. I think in general, it's just making sure that you're working with strong and pronounced vendors, right? It's one for us, especially if you're going to be in a very concentrated amount of, let's just say you might plan to hire maybe a hundred plus workers with a certain type of group or a vendor. You know, what are their plans? What's sort of their engagement models? Making sure that, hey, are they actually true employees of yours? And even being explicit to ask these questions too of like, hey, you know, in a worst case scenario, what would we sort of do here? Some of the vendors that we engage with, it's been good that they at least have different countries or other 
other places that they can do, but they're actually true employees of these companies and they actually have, you know, secondary points of contacts, et cetera. I've had similar scenarios of the worst case you mentioned of that something happened to a worker and we couldn't be able to get in touch with them. Then you're starting to ask other people as a part of your workforce, like, hey, how well did you know them? Do you know someone else, et cetera, which is what you don't want to get to from that standpoint. So being explicit with the vendors too, like, hey, do we have those type of information? If something were to go down if or X, Y, or Z, what are the escalation points? How can we get in touch with these folks and who are the right people to liaison with? So it's a complex one, but I think it really comes down to as to who are you working with when it comes to your vendor, your employers of record, or also potentially your agencies of record as well, too, and those type of methods. No, I'm with you. I'll add one more laborious and boring point to it is constantly auditing your supplier's making sure their contact information is accurate. And honestly, on the CW team saying, you know, does the system I have in place or is this the third-party system that maybe another team has, is that constantly updated? Do I have access to it? And what can the suppliers do? Because that's where I see where, whether you have a great relationship with, you know, Cypress staffing or Swoon staffing or, you know, an outsourcing partner is the ones that you don't have, knowing your company is so big, it's, that email or that supplier name not being updated in the last two or three years is where everything kind of like tumbles down. So it's a boring part. It's an arduous part. But once you get the cycle in of making sure that that's being updated, that makes all those points of contacts helpful. Yeah. And just a couple of points of it too, right? So in the scenarios that we had, we worked with a great vendor that we're able to come up with a shared resource basically for all the folks that we had with them. And we're able to get live updates on like a 24 to 48 hour basis of when's the last time they heard from them. You know, are they safe? What are their location, et cetera. So those are the type of vendors that you want to work with that you can empower the business with too. Because it's not just your worry, you know, your leadership's worried, the managers are worried like, hey, where are my workers? Are they safe? Are they okay? And these dire type of scenarios too, right? And I think another piece of it too, when it comes to worker satisfaction, I think it's good as a touch point to personally reach out to some of these teams to like, hey, are you okay? You know, we're thinking of you. Is there anything that we could do from that piece of it too, right? So strong vendors, but also like, hey, these are people as well too. And sometimes, you know, work is secondary to safety and well-being. And how can we make sure that, you know, we're being cognizant of that piece of it too, right? It's not just, you know, hey, when can you be productive again? It's like, hey, are you safe? No, exactly right. And I would say, especially it's interesting, the company that you work for, you think about modern technology, right? Let's be honest. Email is becoming a thing of the past. It's become, there's too much emails to check, too many email accounts or whatnot. And so as you're working with different types of groups, whether it's millennials or zennials or whatnot, meeting them where they are. So is it email or is it text? Different platform. Is it through video? Dare I say TikTok for a corporate community, (laughs) but like in some way where you're exactly right, where it needs to be a medium that they're actually using and checking and get back pretty quickly. And that there is a a level of, again, you're exactly right. When you need business continuity plannings or disaster plannings, it's not about the work. It's about the people. Yeah. And the idea of being cared for and thought of is so important. And I think it's overlooked in times these days. Let me ask you one last question before we need to wrap up. And it's this because I want to make sure when we think about, you know, the advice you're giving to folks who are effectively managing distributed teams. I love to do kind of an old 1990s, do this, not that, or it used to be a book, eat this, not that, right? To get a trim waistline or so. So if you're advising (laughs) folks who are thinking about this, can you give a couple examples of this is the wrong thing to do and here's the right thing to think through? Yeah, I'd say the biggest learning is that it's not one size fits all and think about it through the entire way. 
it's not one size fits all of how you manage the worker. It's also potentially not one size fits all of how you assess people in interviews. You know, really think about like, hey, what's the core task that they're going to be doing? It's one where, hey, let's think about communication style or even like there's a baseline of what you need to have there too. But think about it too. Are they going to be delivering a presentation to your CEO or can they do the job correctly, right? So it's really thinking of it on multiple fronts too of like, hey, do we potentially change our interview formats or some of the things that we might be asking, right? Because some of these might be cultural, but it's very US cultural. How can we sort of get ahead of those type of pieces? So really being able to be adaptive of it and really sort of draw into the diversity angle of it too. Like, hey, what are the right things to ask? And where's there some flexibility based on what the core work is, right? Because in general, I just feel recruiting in general is at a very inefficient process. That's one where, you know, of the people that you assess, one person gets the job or the other folks really that bad, or is there a place for them, right? So what to do? Always keep iterating. I'm very big on getting data points and insights, both qualitative and quantitative. It's one where you're going to learn a lot. When you meet with someone, you might get all the bells and whistles. But if you send out a survey, you know, people, for the folks that at least do it, and, you know, I get it, it might sort of work in like a Yelp capacity of like only the complainers want to do it. You know, you take it with a grain of salt, but at least you're getting some level of insight, right? And then I think from there, you can start to then dig into some trends, right? Like, hey, we might want to tag this into this bucket, or this is what we're seeing in this area or this org or whatever it may be. But I think in general, it's just always just, you know, having those discussions, doing some of these satisfaction surveys with managers and with workers, and also just being able to like keep looking into different avenues or different toolkits, right? Like it's one where you have your MSP, that's great, but what about these new talent platforms or some of these new other things that are out there? You know, contingent workforce is changing rapidly. I mean, I think for a good contingent owner or those program teams, you know, what's sort of new, what's out there? What's these new automation tools? Maybe it's not workers, maybe it's systems. How can we be more proactive partners of it from there, right? Keep iterating, keep learning, and keep having discussions. It's one where the way that it's set up, tinker with the program. I'm very big on trying to shake something up every 90 days to see if it, you know, pushes a needle on something, right? So those are my do's and don'ts. Like, you know, it's one where just because you might have done this for 10, 20 years doesn't mean it's the right way. And be open and ready to challenge that. Be open and ready for feedback. And ultimately, just be a strong partner is my two cents on it. No, I love it. And I think one of the things that I love about this topic specifically is I think a lot of CWPMs or a lot of programs are so focused on supply chain and time to fill. Yep, exactly. When you're actually in the corporate setting, it is such a, I mean, it's a big piece, but the amount of management and what happens after are typically not taken care of by systems or teams, right? A lot of it falls onto that Usually it's one. My guess is you're a team of one. Usually it's one person. So I love that today was really about like, after people are here, how do you make sure they're in a good spot? And if you're working across the globe, how do you make sure they're communicated, thought through and thought of, which has been really nice because I feel like that's a spot technology and the idea of just because it's worked five years ago, it doesn't anymore and that things need to be shaken up. So Alan, I can't say enough. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to have you back. This has been a fantastic topic. So thank you again for all that you've done. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.